If anyone invited you to go to a newly discovered galaxy, would you go? I would. It's a wonderful way to meet new and exciting people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my SAR book club, where we are exploring the wonderfully strange wrinkle in time. We are on chapter nine, which I think puts us in the last uh, third of the book. Is that right? Um, which is very exciting, and it's been so fun to kind of journey with you all through this book and to read your comments and your thoughts. Every week I discover something brand new, both from the people who comment on the Instagram and Facebook posts and from my wonderful guests who have helped me bring this book to life. And today I have a, a guest who, who joined me on my kind of escape cast over the springtime, uh, too much applause, and that is Dr. Matthew Rothis Moser. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Joy. It's great to be back. I'm really excited to do this chapter with you because you said it's one of your favorite chapters and you read it as a kid. Is that right? Absolutely. I was a little uncertain about the book until I got to this chapter and then it just totally pulled me in. Oh, I love that. It's funny. I feel like there, for everyone, there are different chapters that did that. And for me, I think it was, as a kid, oddly, Aunt Beast, which is coming up in a couple of chapters from now. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it's a curious book. The more I've been reading it, I remember how much I loved it. And I've been like, this really is the weirdest book. Like, I forgot how weird it is, um, but how wonderful. So it'd be really fun to dive in. I yeah. have anticipated everyone knowing you, but why don't you give a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, and where you are now? Because it's changed <laughs> since last we chatted. Sure. I am a recent transplant to Southern California. And when I say recent, I mean Saturday. Oh, wow. uh, my wife and I just moved uh, so I could start teaching online at Azusa Pacific University in their honors college where I will teach theology. Uh, and so we made the move from the East Coast to the West Coast over the last couple of couple of weeks and we now have all of our furniture up we have books going on shelves and so we're starting to settle in and, and feel at home oh well you're very gracious to talk to me in the midst of the whirlwind that is moving um and and also just to clarify your goal is eventually not to only teach online at azusa pacific university <laughs> if that is absolutely the case my my goal is to actually be in a classroom and to have physical rather than digital colleagues and students so that's a, a happy day to look forward to indeed indeed something to look forward to so um when did you first read madeline lingle what was your first encounter of her I, I actually can't think of when my first encounter with her was. As as far back as I can recall, this book has been part of my life. Mm. I think it was just one of the staple books of my childhood. For some reason, I want to peg it around fourth or fifth grade. I think that was around um, the same for me. Yeah, and it was it was there. It was right next to uh, Treasure Island, which I read all of the time as a kid um my side of the mountain mm -hmm. hatchet you know all of those kind of iconic uh childhood books and narnia it was just there on on my shelf and i just loved it it was part of my my childhood uh but i have to tell you i was notoriously bullied for loving this book for you as a child i was because it was quote unquote a girl book Ugh. Because it had a 
that had a, a woman author and a girl protagonist. And so I was bullied notoriously. I mean, I probably gave the bullies plenty of other reasons to bully me. It wasn't just this book. Uh, it might have been my uh, ability or lack thereof at sports. Um, <laughs> but but this was part of it. And uh, I, I very fortunately just didn't care. I was too devoted to to the book. And it was this chapter, which we'll talk about with, with the mm. kind of gnarly um, revelation of what it is mm. that I would pull out and be like, this is what the book is about. Isn't this cool? And so I, I got a, a little bit of respect from the bullies. Well, I agree. It is gnarly and it is cool. <laughs> and um, it's really funny that you say that because Joel and I were just talking. I've been, uh, my mom's been doing kind of a series on education and home and resources and stuff for everyone in this weird season well first of all because her book's coming out the waking wonder but also just as people are kind of navigating that weird space between sending their kids to school or homeschooling you know and we did a series on i just did one with some of my favorite girl heroines and joel was like but people need to know that just because it has a girl heroine doesn't mean it's a girl book like you know there's so many yeah that's exactly right. good and that just seems like you know very obvious but there are so many good books you'd miss if you if you only stuck to the the girl books or the boy books and it's yeah. funny you mentioned like treasure island or um what was the one i was oh i always loved kidnapped did you ever read kidnapped yeah. oh yeah absolutely yeah. so yeah, so kidnapped. riveting um so that's really fun to know that, that was your experience of uh, madeline and have you read i think we talked about didn't you say you'd read a bit of walking on water yeah I read Walking on Water in graduate school, yeah. so I didn't touch it in, mm. until then. And so it was actually when I was writing my PhD dissertation mm. that I was reading that book for the first time, just for fun. Mm. And I actually found it incredibly encouraging and inspiring in the midst of the kind of long and lonely hours of, of research and writing. I think people underestimate how much of a PhD is just like a psychological um, endurance test. You yes. know, and so yes. I think having voices like Madeline's to encourage you in that and say, this can be a form of, of de- a part of your devotional life, even you know that it's a part mm-hmm. of you becoming who you can be, and um, is so encouraging. And I just love her kind of no nonsense and yet somehow also idealistic view of writing and being a Christian. And yeah, she's yeah, delightful. she she always made me feel like writing was a was a vocation and it was yeah. a holy vocation too mm-hmm. uh, and the use of the imagination and creativity even when you're doing like scholarly work yeah. which so often stereotyped as well not just stereotyped can often be so dry and, mm-hmm. and barren of of life but reading her alongside of my research it really encouraged me and challenged me to to recognize what I was doing as something imaginative and creative mm-hmm. and and uh, even prayerful, yeah. even worshipful. Yeah, Yeah. no, I love that. And um, Bose Harrington's coming on next week, and he's been like, we need to talk about right at, uh, walking on water. So we're going Good. to have dive Good. more into Good. that then. But, well, I suppose that we should dive into, um, into this week's chapter. Um, Let's do it. So... I'll try to give a very kind of brief overview of what happens, and then we can dive into the themes in Chapter 9. Um, hold on, I'm pulling up my my notes. So at this point, we've been going through kind of the the dark halls of the central, the central central intelligence. There's something to me kind of amusing about the fact that it has the two centrals, 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like when you really don't need to say those both times because I think it reflects that kind of meaningless, bureaucratic mind-numbing that can happen sometimes. And yeah. so we're in this phase and she, we've just gotten to the thing that we've all been longing for, particularly Meg, which is that she sees her father. And she uh, rushes towards him. He's kind of in this little column. Um, and she slams into it, like slamming into a screen door or into a glass door. And she can't get to him. Um, and in this, uh, Calvin is also kind of like trying to pull Charles Wallace out of his thing. And, you know, Calvin, I love the idea that Calvin's gift is he's so gifted at communicating that he could even kind of get through this, the thickness yeah. of the it. Like, what a gift it would be to be a communicator like that. And I've known people in my life who were like that, who had almost a a spiritual power of, of getting through to people. Yeah, I've um, known people like that too. So he almost gets Charles Wallace out of his out of his little world by quoting the Tempest to him, and mm-hmm. um, but not quite. And then finally, uh, Meg puts on Mrs. Who's glasses, which she's been given as a last resort. I want to talk about Mrs. Who's glasses because I've been pondering pondering them and trying to figure out what they mean and what they represent. Um, and through doing this, she's able to get through to her father, and. Um, which is such a relief, but then this this chapter is a, it's these moments where you think there's going to be relief, and then there's not quite relief. So she yes. gets through to her father, which is so exciting, but then he can't see her. And, um, and so they kind of struggle, and then he puts on the glasses and is able to get out, uh, out of the column, where, again, we have this, this anti-relief of him meeting with Charles Wallace, Charles mm-hmm. Wallace is haughty and mean and and strange, but what's really sad is that the father doesn't know any different because she, he's never known Charles Wallace other than as a baby. Right. Um, and then Charles Wallace kind of wants to lead them to the it, to this this thing that we've been anticipating and knowing. Um, and uh, and but Meg's father is afraid that if they do, that she won't survive the encounter. But it's kind of this inexorable march towards the it. So they march towards the it, and it's in this huge, empty... I always remember being very captured by the way she describes this. This mm-hmm. huge, empty dome, but where they can't hear themselves unless they scream. So it's like it's drowning out all the noise. And in the middle of it is this larger-than-life, grotesque, squishy brain. Yeah. And it's pulsating, and it draws them all into the pulse, and... Meg is trying to resist it, and she tries all these different ways. She quotes Shakespeare. She quotes the Declaration of Independence. She quotes, finally, the irrational numbers. Um, and and then Calvin, bless Calvin, uh, realizes that they need to test her out of there. And they do, and that she's in complete darkness. Yes. So that's kind of what happens in this chapter. Um, I think it's really kind of the moment of narrative tension that we've been building up to. And in the midst of this, she has this also, I I didn't say this, she has this great realization where she says, um, equal is not, I can't remember how she said, but equal is not the same as same. Um, You know, there's a difference between equality and sameness. And um, so we we opened up with that ironic little uh, quote from Madeline's introduction (laughs) to your copy of Wrinkle of Time. Because one feels, how could she be so positive about going to visit other galaxies if you might encounter camisots and the it? Right. Right. And I, I suppose what's strange is she says this is a, a way of meeting new and exciting people. And we don't meet a lot of 
people. And certainly and, not very many exciting ones. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's exciting in one way, but exciting in kind of a terrifying way. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is a, a comment she makes on all of this uh-huh. Wrinkle in Time series. It's all, all, all mm-hmm. five books. And, and so I imagine she's thinking about some of the, the future inventors, <laughs> too. But in here, I'm like, well, you have these kind of like stars, you yeah, know, and that's that's, so that's exciting. But then you have these monotonous uh, uh, women and, yeah. and, and little children playing. And then you have a man with red eyes and you have a pulsating brain and I'm just not sure that new and exciting would be the <laughs> first words that I would put down. Yes. Is it worth it? But I suppose to save your father would be worth it. So Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. so okay, we're just going to unpick what some of the themes, some of the, the things that stick out to us. But I also want to know, why was it that this was your favorite chapter? What was it that got to fourth grade Matthew Moser? Well, I think what really uh, struck me, and for some reason this has been a a theme that I've latched onto in so many books that I've loved, that have been kind of pillar texts Mm -hmm. in in my life, just this idea of there's a, a difference between a fully embodied human existence in which the rational is mm-hmm. situated within the affective and the imaginative and then the disembodied where it's just this this completely detached purely rationalistic mm-hmm. uh, way of existing this theme comes up a lot in c.s lewis's that mm-hmm. hideous strength which when I'm reading Wrinkle in Time, I'm realizing Wrinkle kind of far outstrips that book, mm. uh, especially as we go into the, the climax. Mm. But my absolute favorite book is Severe Mercy by mm. Sheldon Van Auken. He has this revelation as a child. He was like, well, I want to be a tough, a tough man, and so I'm not going to have emotions because emotions are, are for girls. And then he realizes to his horror, he was like, I just had this picture of a disembodied brain in a tower. And it was like, there's no, there's no beauty to, to admire. There's no dogs to love. Mm. There's no uh, delight in sunsets. And so he realized, no, to have a fully human existence, you have to have emotions too. Mm-hmm. And that was this revelation uh, for him. And I, I realized that's a, a, been a constant uh, theme and attraction in my own life. And so I think I was so repulsed by this brain just sitting there conquering everything. And I was like, oh yeah, that really is the enemy. And I think even fourth, fifth grade, I kind of recognized that. I was like, this really does kill everything joyful about life. I think that's what got me. Maybe I I was a melodramatic kid. I don't know. (laughs) I love that. And I think that what you're saying actually testifies to what you're saying, which is that you're reaction to it was partially a reaction of disgust an emotional reaction yeah. to something that Absolutely. you inherently just like perceived as negative it's funny yeah. it it does this is very similar in imagery and in kind of the the emotions it wants to pull up although to me much more visceral um it's very similar to abolition of man or not abolition of man um the that, that history strength yeah, mm-hmm. where, because you also have there that disembodied brain, and you have that scene. Yeah, the head, yeah. The head, and you have that, um, you have that kind of 
that feeling of encountering things that it's not, I mean, we could come up with rational reasons why they're disgusting, but the reaction is this gut affective internal sense of, no, this is wrong. This is not the beautiful, good life that we're meant for. And I think even that is a testament to the fact that the things that are, it's not to diminish the intellect, but to say the things that we find most true, most fundamentally important, we know mm. with our with our love and with our yeah. with our emotions in some ways. Right, right. And it's amazing because right. she's yeah. proving that point, but she's also doing that to us as readers. Yeah, which is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and it's it hasn't been Meg's reason her rationality alone that's led her on this adventure to find her father it's those deeply um embodied uh memories and and affections that she has that's that's given her this courage to come this far it makes me think of in the last chapter i think it's the last chapter charles wallace says to her like something about uh why would you want a father and she goes there's no why to wanting a father you want a father because Mm -hmm. it's your father and it's right. that sense of this kind of pre-rational loyalty, this love, yeah. this embodied nature that she knows to be true. Right. That makes her brave right. and kind of does that. Yeah. So yeah. what are some of the things that stuck out to you in this chapter that you would notice? You know, there's so much happens in this chapter. Truly. I think it's it's one of the densest chapters of the entire book. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that stood out as I was rereading it last night is kind of the crisis of authority. Mm. Uh, you know, Meg is expecting, I'm going to find Father, mm-hmm. and then Father's going to take care of it all. Mm-hmm. Right? You had mentioned in your summary, it's, it's almost anticlimactic, right? Mm-hmm. You're expecting, okay, things are going to start to resolve. We only have a couple of chapters of this yeah. book, and yet things are worse than ever. Mm. Uh, and so I see this as, as the beginning of Meg's uh, journey of realizing I have to take some responsibility here, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a, a growing pains kind of chapter mm-hmm. where she starts to um, realize that that she's she has an active role to play here. Yeah. She's not simply on a retrieval mission yeah. for somebody to come in and fix it, uh, and and that's really evident, I think, in the fact that Mr. Murray, like you said, doesn't know that Charles Wallace isn't mm-hmm. like this, yeah. right? That he's flipping, he's like, oh, hiya, pop. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know why I want him to sound like he's from Boston when he <laughs> says that. Um, but, you know, that kind of snarkiness, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Murray has no context for that. And so Meg has to become the teacher yeah. in some ways because she's been raising mm-hmm. Charles Wallace kind of mm-hmm. in the absence of, of her father. And so she's taking on this much more active role, it seems like to me in, in this chapter. So that's one thing that, yeah. that stood out to me. I, I, to me, I feel like a lot of the kind of trajectory of this book is Meg living into her strength and kind of becoming mm-hmm. a person who knows that she has agency that can shape the world. And I think in some ways, this is a really relatable scene and that most of us will not find ourselves bursting through an invisible column to save our fathers from whatever. But there mm. comes a moment, um, I think in adulthood where you suddenly realize that, um, there's not an older person you can tap on and be like, well, how do I fix this? You know, right, you can look for right. wisdom, but you know, whether it's realizing with your parents, you can have the best parents in the world, but there comes a moment where you still have to be the grown up and you still have to make choices. 
or you know there even I just even think of like during the lockdown there were several moments where I just would kind of get anxious and think well this has to change or end or stop and there's some moment where you kind of had to go no I I have to choose to be the strong person you know and we can't always be that but she's having that moment of realizing that she has a role in, in keeping this going and being brave and um I think that kind of started in the last chapter where it says she kind of mastered her desire to go hysterical and move forward but she is becoming she's becoming this heroine and and realizing that uh that we have a role to play that and i think that's a really beautiful kind of maturation of meg is her realizing who she is and that her faults are good things in that sense you know her over emotionality is the thing that's keeping her going in this and kind of owning her part in the story and i think that's something everybody has to do at some point and, and so it's very relatable in Meg's story to realize that at some point even the people you look up to and love um, can't take over your capacity to choose and to move forward and to be brave yeah yeah and it it sets up the decisions that Meg will have to make mm-hmm. at the very end of of the story but I I was struck as I was rereading this book uh, just how organic her growth and development is there's not a lot of like uh flashing signals like okay this is a character to de- no develop no like moment. forced it's moments just, yeah yeah it's all just so natural and it spurs out of her deep commitment and her deep love for her father and for mm-hmm. her brother and increasingly for calvin too mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the pivotal moment comes later on it's like oh this has been so earned this yeah. has been so earned by by Meg, and it's like, yeah, of course this, of course this is how it's going to go because she is the only one that can act mm. at this point. So, so yeah, I think taking on, not enabling somebody to shirk the responsibility, you yeah. know, Mister Mer, none of the characters kind of get uh, portrayed as passive, as kind of joke characters or mm-hmm. lazy characters. But just realizing that we have our sphere of vocation. Yeah. And, and at Mr. some point Murray you have to step fulfill. into that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and I see this as, as a major chapter for for Meg mm. on that point. The other thing that really stood out, and I, you mentioned this earlier, is there's a lot of vision stuff and eyesight stuff yes. with the glasses and <laughs> Meg's father being in the dark. And so I'll just um, be irresponsible and just mention that and then toss it to you and what do you think's going on with those glasses yeah you know i was doing the very grown-up thing today of googling mrs who's glasses (laughs) you know because i i I have stepping into your vocation yes no i have (laughs) i have ideas about it but it is really interesting like with meg's father not being able to see like you said and then um this earlier we have um there's twice where people say Meg is blind as a bat. Meg says it about herself. And mm-hmm. then uh, and then Mrs. Who says it about her and she gives her these glasses. And I was reading and thinking about the fact that bats are not blind in the sense that it's not like they have an ability that they then is taken away from them. It's that they perceive the world in a different way. And so I wonder if a part of this is kind of an intimation towards the idea of there are things which can be perceived but can't be seen if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So an awareness mm-hmm. of of realities below the surface. And in some ways, I think that's kind of what you see in Meg, this kind of 
you could almost call it a blind devotion, um, mm-hmm. but that pulls mm-hmm. her forward. And so uh, those are some of my thoughts about, I think Mrs. Who's glasses kind of represent that ability to, to see beyond and to see more deeply uh, realities that, for instance, the purely rational Camazots cannot. Um, mm-hmm. So those are some of my thoughts, but what do you think? Well, I, I really liked paying attention to some of the little gestures that um, Lingle puts in here. So when Meg swaps out her glasses for Mrs. Who's glasses, they, they start off and they're kind of down her nose and <laughs> nothing's different. And then she, she punches them up and then the whole world is, is kind of uh, changed and she can see, see mm-hmm. through the column and, and make her way through. And, and it just seems like there's two intentional actions. There's mm-hmm. almost a kind of like conversion moment, mm-hmm. right? The, yeah. I'm doing the theologian thing of just overreading things, I'm you, sure. You know that uh, I, I, I approve of that, so. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> but, you know, taking off one pair of glasses and then putting on, on another, it's it's that eyes of faith kind of yeah. motif, it, it seems to me. Um, and then... And then having to, okay, I can't just wear them. I actually have to look through them. They have to be so a that, part of me, like a yes, part, yeah, part of my apparel. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm I'm putting on a new a new way of seeing. All right, these aren't just these aren't just uh, little accents or fashion statements or anything like that. Like these are actually, in a sense, kind of melding with with my eyes and transforming the the way that I see mm. and. I mean that's the kind of fascinating thing about this this scene as she goes through and she can see her father perfectly and she to such an extent that she doesn't realize that he's kind of stumbling in the dark mm. right and, yeah. and 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 he's still able to to hug her and kind of hold her even in in the darkness and when she says you know, I can can see all of these things, and she tries to give him the glasses. He's like, "Well, your glasses aren't going to help me, Meg." Mm. <laughs> yeah, fairly really common. Like, like Meg, your your kind of normal prescription glasses. Mm. You know, they're good for you, but they're not, not really going to help yeah. me in this kind of extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, I don't know how you read that, but kind of vaguely fatherly, like. Meg, you're you're a little kid. Yes, honey. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then <laughs> she's like, "They're not my glasses. They're Mrs. Who's glasses." As if that explains anything. I know. Which right. which reminds us, does he know the Mrs. W's? I guess I he must not. I don't think so because uh, the narrator says, uh, "But they're they're Mrs. Who's. They aren't mine." She explained, not realizing that her words would sound like gibberish to him. Mm-hmm. And then, please try them, Father, please. And then she waits while he's kind of fumbling around. And then she says, can you see now? Can you see now, Father? And it's just, yes, yes. And there, there's just, again, you have Meg kind of undergoing this conversion, putting mm-hmm. off one way of seeing and yeah. putting on another, and then sharing it with her father and mm-hmm. enabling him to see. And I just love that kind of exchange of vision. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think it coincides with this kind of new identity that Meg is taking on, right? Because like we're saying, she's kind of moving into this position of agency. And that kind of coincides with her putting on the glasses and becoming 
this kind of almost savior figure for Mr. Murray, I'm going to give a really galaxy brain take that might be wrong. Um, but as Sarah and I were talking about how interesting it is that you kind of have this almost Trinitarian way of describing the Mrs. Mm-hmm. W's, right? You mm-hmm. have the kind of distant uh, Mrs. Witch and then the the mediating Mrs. What's It that explains, you know. And, um, and Mrs. Who, who speaks only in other people's words and is kind of this mysterious character, is in that, in that um, you know, version of reading this is kind of the Christ character. And so it's it's almost like her putting on Christ, putting on the way of mm-hmm. seeing the world through that. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's, it is quite literally a not, it's a transforming of her own mind, her ability to like see in this new way. And that to someone who is not seeing through that, it doesn't sound like a thing that would help them or a thing that would be important. But she, in this act of love, like brings it to somebody else. So that, I don't know, that's a very, uh, if you thought you were theologically over reading it, I think <laughs> I just did it. But but I think there's something to that, the idea of putting on Christ, putting on virtue or, or in a new way of seeing. Uh, and I love that that's physically embodied for her. What do you make of the, of the image of you wear these glasses and then you can like walk through the walls? I mean... Like the atoms are rearranging? I'm just getting so many doubting Thomas. I was going to say, I mean, that's what Jesus here. does, right? He, he right. walks through the walls and says... Right. Hello, Thomas. So I know it. That is an interesting thing. And, yeah. It's interesting because the other people who have the capacity to walk through walls are the are the evil people, are the man with red eyes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much here. Yeah, and we're just in, like, the first couple of pages of the... Of I know! The oh, my gosh. Yes, I guess we should run ahead. <laughs> um, so... Okay, so we have, we've gotten through this section. She gets through, she gets father out. Um, and, and then we move towards the big, ugly, uh, exciting part that you, that nine-year-old Matt loved. Uh, yes. The brain. Um, I think this is really interesting. Something I noticed about this is that she, and then I want all your thoughts on it, is that we have that moment a few chapters back where she names all of the great resistors of the dark thing, right? She talks about mm-hmm. Shakespeare and scientists and all these different things. And in this space in which they're being drawn into this pulsating rhythm, the people that she calls on, like that she tries to remember their words, or remember their theories, she's kind of reckoning back or recalling yes. back to these, yeah. to these yeah. um, historic resistors, which I think yeah. is really interesting. Well, yeah, and you do have the influence of Shakespeare when Calvin mm-hmm. is is making the the allusion to Charles Wallace being trapped like Ariel's trapped right mm-hmm. by right the witch and mm-hmm. and it's not the Mrs. W's as you call them that are the witches but mm-hmm. it is it that is that is the the real witch and that of course starts to to pull Charles Wallace mm-hmm. uh, out of, of it but even even Shakespeare's not not powerful enough. enough, right? I mean, if he had quoted Dante, we might have gotten a little yeah, bit further, right. but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's another whole thing. Uh, but, yeah, so so even even all of the, the art and the science, it's, it's not going to be quite enough. quite enough. It has to be animated by something, mm. you know, even deeper, or, or what C.S. Lewis would, would call, you know, that kind of deeper magic. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> I think my favorite scene in this chapter as I, I was rereading it is after Meg and her father come out of the mm. cell while he's wearing the glasses and Charles Wallace is just there and he's just impatiently tapping his foot uh-huh. with his arms crossed uh-huh. uh, and he's like it is not pleased it <gasps> is not pleased at all and it strikes me that it's it's almost a way of speaking in the third person mm-hmm. for for Charles Wallace. Mm-hmm. You know he's he's really lost all of his personhood, mm-hmm. which I think ties back to some of the things you were talking about in in earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about himself, mm-hmm. right? I'm not pleased, but his eye has been swallowed up in in it. It's like mm-hmm. the. Uh, you know Martin Buber's uh, I Thou, you know, this is Which, this is kind of a, a dramatization of that. Yeah, and for people who wouldn't know that, Martin Buber had yeah. the idea of we have different relationships to people. There's the I-it, um, quite literally, that's what he calls it, which is kind of we mm-hmm. relate to things as objects. The I, it's I-it, I-you, I-thou, right? Mm-hmm. And the I-you is you're a person, um, but it's kind of a surface level person. The I-thou is to know someone deeply and yeah. to know them as an individual with desires and, and wills. And he talks about how we, you know, for instance, in a grocery line, if you don't look your your person who's helping you in the grocery line in the eye, you might be relating to them in an I-it way, that you're not mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. them as a person. But the only in our deepest relationships do we recognize I-thou. And in this case, I feel like Charles Wallace has literally uh, related to himself as an I-it. Yes, you know I mean? right, exactly. It's no one else doing it to him, he's doing it to himself. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and it it seems so significant that it's it's an it. There is no name here, right? The the villains mm-hmm. of this story, the black thing, and it, right? Yeah. There's there's nothing personal. There's nothing mm-hmm. uh, humane about them. They're these kind of almost abstractions, and yeah. and that's what Charles Wallace becomes. And so all he can. All he resorts to being is just this kind of impatient, petulant person tapping his foot and being like, it's not, it's not very happy with you all. Yeah. With your, yeah. Well, and I think that's a picture for Lingle of, I think wholeness is particularity. Mm-hmm. It's being grown into the, the very specific named particular being that you were created to be. And evil mm-hmm. is, like you said, a complete abstraction from that. Uh, mm-hmm. Um a kind of blurry nothingness that doesn't have any dis- distinctiveness to it. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the picture of the it, right? Because it's trying to pull you into that namelessness where you literally lose consciousness and you can't. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just vibration, and it's that vibration that drowns out, mm-hmm. drowns out thought. It drowns mm-hmm. out creativity, and and it ultimately kind of begins to drown out identity. Um, it just it it so fills the space that it that it pushes all of those other things out until until Meg just starts to kind of lose herself and mm. who she is. Um, I have a funny it, question. Do you think that Calvin is as overwhelmed by the it as Meg is? Okay, so that was that I was actually going to ask you that question because Mr. Murray is like, you know, Calvin, don't give in. He's like, I won't help Meg and so I'm wondering mm. why why is Meg the vulnerable one here because Meg's terrified 
mm-hmm. when she sees it, right? She's disgusted by it. But when she asks her father, like, have you seen it before? He says, yes. And the narrator puts, he sounded exhausted. Mm. And so Mr. Murray is exhausted by it. Mm-hmm. You know, Calvin seems like, okay, I can take this. Why is it that Meg is horrified and disgusted and mm. so vulnerable to it? Why do you think that is? I be, Because, I mean, it, um, I think with Charles Wallace, we see that he's vulnerable to it because he trusts in his intellect too much. You know what I mean? He, right. he, kind, he has this arrogance that is predicted to be his downfall, and it kind of is, this trust in his ability to think. Um, and Calvin... Calvin just seems like the best friend to have. He's just, you know, he's a he's a guy with great boundaries, so he's got a lot to give. Um, but he just, I I wonder why it is. I don't know. What do you think? Well, can I can I dodge that and talk about Calvin for a second and Absolutely. then come to? <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if Calvin has has those boundaries, as you say, because he's. He's lived in something of an abusive yeah. life, mm. and so he has that kind of resilience. Mm. Um, you know, that resilience to an mm. abuse that that's just going to be this kind of pounding message that tries of, to wear away at your identity and your sense of yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That that's always been my way of huh. of understanding that. Meg, though, I brought up Calvin because I don't really know how to answer the, the, big problem. the the meg thing so uh that was i think what we called the academic dodge <laughs> um yeah i'm really not sure with meg to to be honest i wonder if this is just a thought and perhaps this is kind of a good place to begin leaving us towards the question mark at the end of a chapter mm-hmm we know with Meg, you know, with Charles Wallace, he kind of gives in because he has this over-reliance on his intellect. But I think that Meg, Meg is this strange mixture of, she has these really profound strengths intellectually, um, and then sees kind of everything else about her as, as a weakness. And, um, and she's told to like, your, your faults or your strength, but she never quite knows what that means yet. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if part of it is that in an inability to accept her faults that we'll eventually kind of see um, are the things that save her, she can lean back and rely on that that kind of um, over-reliance on the intellect and, and acting as though the thing that is important about her is is that aspect. So maybe that's something to it? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think, too, that maybe the you catch an echo of its propounding rhythm, or its mm. pounding rhythm, excuse me, uh, in Meg's relentless self-critique mm. at the beginning of It's almost the like she's doing it to herself. She's doing the it, wearing to her self to herself, in the same Which, way that Charles Wallace does it to himself. Yeah, and, and so maybe that's what makes her kind of vulnerable to it, mm. because she already is, in a sense, participating in this failure to recognize her difference as a good her faults Mm. as a good you know maybe she's already kind of in some ways been uh participating in that because she just wants to be accepted and hear um what it is offering is something of a temptation yeah i think you're right 
and it's a temptation that she's vulnerable to and that's why her her realization that equal and and same aren't or equal and like aren't the same thing and that's what she kind of latches onto that's what she latches onto and that's the only way that she can resist Mm. and i mean again could totally be over reading it but but I, i my suspicion is that she's saying that both to it capital mm. it but also to the it that she's kind of carrying yeah. within yeah Maybe. no i i think so and i think that you kind of again this is all a part of her growth because in the last chapter charles wallace tries to get her to give in by appealing to that self-criticism in herself going absolutely your differences make are painful for you and blah 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 and she she responds by kind of going yeah, they are painful, but I would rather be myself than, than uh, give in to everything. And so mm-hmm. I think this is kind of a continuation of her owning owning that reality. And, and quietly and, and kind of through this long trajectory trying to put to death that voice that would tempt her into saying it'd be better to not be myself and um, to be in the it and be accepted than, than to be different and be myself. Yeah. And Yeah. I think that's why Meg, everyone I talk to, I've, when I keep on looking at uh, when people comment on this, they all just say Meg is so relatable. That's the thing people always say. And I think mm-hmm. it's because that is, I think, a temptation for most people to uh, that self-criticism and that desire to kind of, if I could just be okay, uh, I think that her struggle is very relatable. And I think that for all of us, life is a long pursuit of you know, I love how Honor Now puts it of living as a beloved person more yeah. than as a person who's trying to equate their identity by being just like everyone else or being perfect or doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful phrase for the journey that Meg is on. Yeah. Um, and that sets her up really nicely for the big decisions that she she has to make. She has to make. But of course, yeah. we don't really get a resolution in this. They have escaped. We do not. But where have they escaped to? And have they conquered the it? Are they just going to leave all the people in Camazots to to rot? Including Charles Wallace. Oh, that's right. Because Charles Wallace is not with them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. He stays. And in fact, here's a, a nice uh, handoff to the next episode. You know, Meg's looking at the it, and she wishes she had a dissecting knife so she could slash at it and cut ruthlessly uh, through it. And then words are spoken directly to her, or within her, it says. Um, Not through Charles, not mediated, but again, that it within. Don't you realize that if you destroy me, you also destroy your little brother? Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. Well... I guess we'll have to leave it there on a cliffhanger till next week. Uh, this has been so delightful. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I'm sure there will be episodes of some kind someday far in the future. Um, but this has been so fun. So thank you for joining yeah. me. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Joy. And everybody else, I look forward to hearing all of your thoughts. Um, leave comments on Instagram and Facebook. And also I encourage you to engage with each other's comments because I'm always trying to get through all of them, but I love seeing other people talk to each other. So everyone engage in that way as well. Um, Thank you all for listening and join me next week for chapter 10. We'll see what happens to Meg.